Welcome to the Barry Sack Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sack Show. I am Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes and any links can be found at barrysax.com. Carrie Kaufman is Associate Professor of Saxophone at the Hart School at the University of Hartford and Lecturer of Saxophone at the Yale School of Music. She's appeared at numerous World Saxophone Congresses, the SaxArt International Saxophone Festivals in Italy, the International Clarinet and Saxophone Festival in China, and several North American Saxophone Alliance National Conventions. Carrie is a graduate with high honours from the University of Michigan, where she studied with Donald Sinter, and also the University of North Texas, where she studied with James Riggs and Eric Nessler. Carrie regularly appears as a chamber musician and clinician and has been a featured soloist with numerous orchestras and bands, including the Fairfax Symphony Orchestra and the Hartford Symphony Orchestra. Committed to new music, Carrie has commissioned and premiered around 50 compositions. Her recording projects comprise 12 commercially available CDs and she has an ongoing recording and performing series entitled Pink Ink that is dedicated to promoting the music of living women composers. Please welcome my guest today, Carrie Kaufman. So a great place to get started, of course, is how did you get started on the saxophone? Well, um, uh, proudly through my public school band program, (laughs) um, I grew up in a very small town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Um, Sometimes maps don't even include the Upper Peninsula, sadly. Uh, And it's called Iron Mountain. There's about 8,000 people that live in the town of Iron Mountain, and that's considered one of the larger towns in the Upper Peninsula. Um, And my parents got me piano lessons, and then fifth grade came around, and I was told that I could join band. And I don't know why, but I didn't want to. (laughs) But then by the time I got in sixth grade, I had heard all my friends playing the theme song from Rocky. And I said, I want to do that. That sounds fun. So my, you know, my mom had a friend who had a, a clarinet that was going unused. So I drove, you know, she drove me across town and I got the clarinet and that's when I started. So I could play the theme song from Rocky on the clarinet. And um, that I went to you know, junior high. Uh, There's this big band, 120 kids in this small town of seventh, eighth, and ninth graders. And the, there were no tubas. So the band director took out a contra alto clarinet and E flat. Now, how often in your life have you seen this instrument, right? <laughs> I mean, how often do you want to see that instrument too? It's scary. <laughs> no, this, is, this is the question, right? <laughs> and there was one instrument and there was one reed. <laughs> And he took it out and he played the lowest note. And I thought that low note was so cool. So he said, who wants to play this? And I said, me, I want to play that. So I played um, the tuba parts on that instrument and very quickly got extremely bored. And then I looked around the room and I thought, wow, that saxophone is so 
beautiful. It looks so beautiful. And um, I love the shape. And I went downtown and I rented a, you know, to the only music store and I rented an, a Bundy and I figured out some notes and it was, it really was love at at the first note, I was playing Barry Manilow songs that first week on the instrument, <laughs> which are just hilarious. So that is how I ended up choosing the saxophone. <laughs> you know, the, the the clarinet can can really encourage people to swap to saxophone. Yes, it's so true. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so I was I was drawn to the warmth, I think, and uh, and the, and even at that time, really the colors. Is the high school band a common way to get started in the States? Oh, yes. I would say for so many people, it's the most common way with wind instruments, um, string instruments. It could, it's a lot of through Suzuki programs as they are around the world. And they, of course, are designed to start at a much younger age. But um, yeah, depending on where you are in the States, it's usually around age 10, occasionally a little earlier, occasionally a little bit later. So do you get private lessons with a specialist when you start in the band or is it all up to the band director? Um, it really depends on the district. Um, in Connecticut, my son got uh, group lessons with uh, his teacher, who happened to be one of my alums. Um, when I, I spent my first three years professionally as a middle school band director, I put my husband through graduate school as a middle school band director. And there, that was not the case. We just had huge, large groups right from the beginning. So inconsistent. Okay. So it's really up to each district to uh, decide how they spend their money. Yes, exactly. I don't think I've spoken with anyone who has learned with Don Sinta. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I had, you know, I'd grown up in Michigan, like I said, in this little town and lower Michigan might as well have been the other side of the world um, for the way that it was then. You know, it was before the internet, it was hard to get information. And the University of Michigan was 500 miles away from my from my town, um, which is not that much in Australia, I know. But <laughs> and, uh, and I had, you know, gone to a summer camp where I had met the Canadian saxophonist Bill Street, and and I ran into him at the last NASA conference, and you know I was just so hungry that, for any information, um, and so I was already set up to go to the University of Michigan, and I was not set up to be a music major because I didn't know how to be a music major. I was going to be in the Honors College of Literature, Science, and Arts, and I went to Donald Sinta's saxophone workshop at Interlochen and met him there. Um, and you know, it, I just I knew that I had to figure out how to study this instrument with this man, um, who was the most you know he's the most charismatic person I've still met to this day. But the turning point is he played Debussy's Syrinx for slumber music, which was this outdoor thing in the cabins where all the kids are going to sleep. And I just had this vivid memory of tears streaming down my face because I was so moved by the experience. So that was my introduction. Um, and uh, yeah, studying with him. So I, I just, you know, so I went to Michigan and I, I studied with one of his alums and I auditioned and I transferred into music for my second year. And I just was never happier at that, you know, it, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, so he was this wonderful balance. Um, he's all passion, all energy, um, but also great with nuts and bolts. I mean, he built my playing from the ground up. He gave me an embouchure. 
playing tune. He taught me to control my vibrato. He taught me to build my facility. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, he just, you know, he, he told me once years later that the most important thing he could do was to love all of his students. And I just thought that was such a great summary of how he was because he just had this way of taking each student and making him feel like they were the most important human at that moment in that space, in that time, it just had this remarkable way of believing in everybody that he worked with. And um, so it was, yeah, it was a beautiful thing. And I'm, it, it was not without frustration. There were lots of frustrations <laughs> as there is in uh, learning an instrument and trying to uh, engage with this sound in space and time that we call music. That part was great. And then later, you know, I worked for him at Interlochen um, and he's really important. He actually introduced me to my husband um, almost 30, 30 years ago. So we, you know, we have a 13 year old son and his middle name is actually Donald because of that introduction. Yeah. So, but, it, you know, at, at this particular time in this particular country, <laughs> we have to be very clear about which Donald <laughs> <laughs> he is named for it. So, <laughs> so yes. Um, and, you know, he, con he continues to inspire me to this day. The whole reason I went and did my master's degree at North Texas is because I was inspired by Don Santos' sabbatical studying improvisation, and he sent his own son there. So, I would say that, um, you know, the, the mentorship was strong for me and and everybody else that I meet that worked with them as well. Um, but uh, highly individualized. I think the curriculum was not the same for everybody. He was very good at looking at a person, um, showcasing their strengths, but servicing their weaknesses. Um, and I've tried to model my own, own teaching after that as well. You know, how do we showcase your strengths while teaching to your weaknesses at the same time? Do you think that human element of teaching is a common approach where really the person behind the student is taken into account and perhaps the teacher is, you know, sharing their humanity? Uh, uh, well, I hope so. <laughs> um, but everybody's different, right? And teaching is an art, not a science. And I do know teachers who the first thing they do is take their students' music and write all their own markings in it. And I... That's not the way that I like to teach. Um, I, I, it can work different ways for different people, depending on what people need at that point in their lives as well. I think sometimes we present something and a student's not ready for it, and they might come back to it years later and go, oh, that's what they meant. <laughs> or they might never. So, um, But I think with the privilege of applied music, where it's all a one-on-one -on -one situation, I mean, yeah, I feel like it's a personal responsibility to take advantage of the fact that I can design a curriculum that's different for every single student. While at the same time, look at, um, you know, a uniform minimum level that everyone has to reach to earn the degree. Do you know what I mean? So it's sort of that balancing act all the time. So how much of your own teaching has come from the influence of your own lessons as a student? Um, Oh, I think a lot. Uh, and, you know, 
I'm turning 50 in a few months. So it's actually hard to distinguish at this point. I try very hard to, you know, because we're this composite of so many years of experience. Um, and I've, I've learned so much from my students directly as well. Um, and at this point, I have so many more years of teaching different students than I do having been a student myself. Um, and I try very hard to say, oh, this came from this experience or this came from this person or this came from um, this recording or this performance. Uh, uh, but that's hard to do after this many years. <laughs> so I'd say, yeah, it's a this beautiful, fabulous combination of uh, definitely the Donsenta approach and and also, you know, my, my two teachers at North Texas, Jim Riggs and Eric Nessler for totally different reasons. Um, and then every student along the way, every colleague around the way, along the way, every composer I've worked with, every person I've collaborated with. Do you know what I mean? Sure. It all combines together. Yeah, exactly. Did moving from teacher to teacher, did that confuse you or did that uh, challenge you in, you know, in a way that made you grow? Because I, I bump into students sometimes who have attended so many different classes, teachers, master classes, some schools, they're a little confused sometimes. They've had so many different opinions sort of directed at them. Yeah, I think that can happen. And I think if I'm going to generalize, it's harder for younger students than it is for more mature students to be doing that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, a, one of the things that was grounded philosophically right from the beginning was um, this, I don't know, sort of this individual path and um, doing something that was improvisatory and in the moment and, uh, you know, responding to that moment in time. And I think because of that, that particular thing wasn't so difficult. Plus, I, I, I was going to other teachers for very different reasons. You know, I went to North Texas to study jazz improvisation as a beginner. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was learning very specific things. You know, Eric Nessler was very organized and he taught me a lot about Baroque ornamentation and score study with pieces like the Denisov and um, he had put a lot of thought into his curriculum development and he shared that with me and you know Jim Riggs was much more global he'd say these um, large statements that would be something like oh it just doesn't sound professional and then it'd be like it would be completely up to me to figure out what he meant but you know it was a powerful observation I'd have to go okay all right, so what am I going to do about that? <laughs> you know, but he believed in my endeavor to try to unravel what was like this mystery at the time. And, um, and I'm not just, I am still a beginning improviser. Um, I, when it comes to jazz, you know, I mean, I there's improvisation in classical music all the time, but um, I still play in the privacy of my own living room, <laughs> but I'm glad to have had that experience. And it was such a, you know, I had such an unusual path. I, I really, um, just because I was, I, I, I got jobs so early on. Uh, so I think it's, it's different than a lot of kids who stay in school and go through three degrees and never have a break. Um, so I was given the luxury of time and space to be my own teacher and unfold at a pace that was really unique to me. I'm pleased to hear that you mentioned improvisation, especially in classical music, 
because I've, I find it a little bit of a lost art sometimes. They've got their music in front of them and they're, they're reluctant to step away from that. And when they're asked to step away from it, it doesn't quite work. So what drew you to wanting to improvise or perhaps wanting to study it even more? In classical music where we're improvising uh, with time and dynamics and phrase shapes and details of nuance and of color and not so much with notes and rhythms, right? In jazz improvisation, we're choosing the notes and rhythms. So that's a very different thing. Um, but for me, uh, you know, even in the practice room, sort of creativity exercises involve experimenting and being imaginative and trying these things and improvising with these things. Um, and if that element of improvisation isn't happening in the practice room, it's not going to happen on the stage either. So, yeah, it, it, there's, I guess that's how I'd summarize it. Does that make sense? Would you say that original interpretation comes through it? through a process of improvisation? Yes, I would say for me, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, when I practice something, I try, I mean, it depends on what it is, right? It's repertoire driven and different pieces of repertoire require different things or different projects require different things. But um, yeah, I try to take a, a phrase or a section of music or a movement and find many different ways to do it. Sometimes I put a number on it. Sometimes I'll photocopy a piece 10 times and make 10, you know, 10 different interpretations. For me, for me, that's fun, first of all, <laughs> but it also helps me discover, I think, more about what the possibilities of that music are. Have you come across that approach of copying somebody's interpretation in students where instead of perhaps exploring the interpretive side of music, they have a tendency to copy perhaps one of their mentors uh, off an album? Well, I think that it's part of the process. And so if it's, if it's something, I mean, I, uh, one of the things that I do on a regular basis <clears throat> um, is I do ask my students to transcribe and they, uh, they do, they have to, do a jazz transcription every semester, but they also have to do a classical transcription every semester. And I try to encourage the greatest vocalists in the world. Um, and this came from, you know, actually Don Sinta saying, listen to singers, listen to singers. And I sort of didn't really get that. It was like, who do I listen to? Why am I listening to them? And then at some point I kind of, I said, okay, so let me transcribe them. Let me figure what it is, you know? So, so my barometer with music making is if it gives me goosebumps, I know something's exciting, something special. So if I listen to a recording and I get goosebumps, I think, oh, I'm going to transcribe that and see if I can figure out why I'm getting those goosebumps. You know, what is it about that? Um, but for me, that's a way of of gaining expressive vocabulary, gaining color vocabulary, and having to do with you know the nuances of tiny things, articulations and variations and vibrato, and you know really dynamic extremes in text. So when my students do these, they have to learn to play it as close to the recording as they can, and then they have to notate it. But they're not allowed to use any notes and rhythms or staffs. So they have to figure out a way to try to show in a visual way what it is that they're hearing. And it's also a way of showing just how limiting notation is. But then 
the idea isn't that they're going to step on stage and perform that piece exactly that way. The idea is just that they have this vocabulary with which to work. So, yeah, if they're coming in with a, you know, whatever, the Creston Sonata and they're playing it exactly like a particular recording, it depends on where they are. Because if you think about learning a foreign language, um, there's definitely a stage where they're just repeating words and that's kind of okay and that's necessary. You know, my son is studying Chinese in school and he's just repeating words and he hasn't started really yet to be able to put together very detailed sentences or tell stories in Chinese. So I think with music, it can be the same way. Um, so at some point, if that happens, and that's only the thing that's happening, I mean, or I shouldn't say that at the, at the same time, I'm fostering creativity in many other ways, but it might be a smaller way. Maybe it's a certain individual phrase or, you know, we'll say, okay, okay, play that phrase. Now find a different way to do it. Now find a different way to do it. And I try to use, um, you know, how Stravinsky said there's uh, freedom and limitation. I may limit what they can do. You can only, you, so you can only use this aspect. In other words, so the dynamic has to say exactly the same and you have to find another way to vary it. Now the tempo has to say exactly the same. You can vary X. Do you know what I mean? So I'm taking different variables in and out. And that seems to really help them um, find other possibilities. So yes, because we don't want them practicing, you know, playing, playing like a computer file. <laughs> now, I'm a little curious about your sort of day-to-day -day activities because you have two teaching positions. I do. But yeah, it's a lot of teaching hours for sure. And I love teaching. So <laughs> the balance is difficult. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I've spent 24 years in academia. I love school. I love learning. I love the academic environment. Um, and academia, by definition, at least in the United States, is a, a triad position. A third of it is supposed to be teaching. A third is supposed to be creative work and research. And a third is supposed to be service and outreach. Um, but during the academic year, teaching takes up way more than a third. So, you know, balance is hard and it, it does consume me. Um, and I just have to be very careful, <laughs> I guess. Um, and I, you know, I screw up that balance all the time, practically daily. <laughs> and then I try to be aware of the, um, what the, the consequence and what that's doing and try to make a little adjustment when I can <laughs> to try to nudge it back into some kind of serviceable arrangement. <laughs> I'm, I guess part of that busyness, I'm always curious to know how people practice once they're working as opposed to as full-time students. What, uh, what are some of the things that you've ad adopted, I guess, efficiencies that you've adopted that have helped you maintain your playing when perhaps you have less time because you're working? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think the biggest way that my practicing has evolved is I try very hard not to be sort of married to the same routines that I was stuck in as a younger person. Do you know what I mean? Like there was a time in my life where I really needed those routines and I was putting in my, my 10,000 hours, as they say, to, you know, quote unquote, learn how to do it. Um, and, but I found I actually maybe got too, too devoted to those routines. And um, I'm a, uh, I, 
do a lot of yoga as well. And one of the things that yoga taught me is this idea that, you know, especially Kripalu yoga, where I did my training um, up in Massachusetts, you step on your mat every day and you ask yourself, what do I need today? And, you know, maybe it's, Maybe you need something a little more intense or a little less intense. And I, you know, I had a senior yoga teacher once that said his practice for a whole year at one point was to take a nap in the afternoon. <laughs> that was really important for me. So I actually, when I pick up my instrument, I ask myself, what do I need today? Um, and yeah, I still practice scales and they're important to me. And I, there are certain things that are non-negotiable. I have to have a pitch reference every day. I have to practice vibrato every day or I can't control it. So more control gives me more freedom. I have to find ways to keep that control. Um, but, you know, what I need from day to day could change. And that's been really good for me to say, oh, maybe I, you know, maybe today I need I don't know, maybe I need a whole hour of <laughs> playing harmonic minor fifths. I don't know, you know, maybe I need only to practice altissimo. Maybe I need to, maybe I'm doing a work that has a lot of double tonguing and I need to really make sure that that's um, physically something I can use at that moment. Um, so I would say the level of mindfulness about what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and how I'm doing it is much greater than it was when I was a student. So I'm taking that, well, you know, I try to, I should say, I still end up, <laughs> I can definitely go through the motions and then I have to catch myself and say, wait a minute, why am I doing that? What is it I'm trying to accomplish? You know, it's basically like a lesson plan. I try to get my students to be better about that too. What do I want to accomplish? How am I going to accomplish it? And then how will I know whether I accomplished it? So um, I've become, and I work to be far more intentional about what I'm doing than I used to be. Do you think that's something that could work backwards? So if a student was to learn some of those things at the start, could that apply? Or do, does a student have to go through the process of, of all those hours and experimentation? There's a, there's a quote by Suzuki about what ability is, you know, 10,000 hours plus whatever. Um, I think that it's hard to see the end when you're starting out. Um, I think it's hard to see the end when you're in the middle. I can't see the end. You know, I'd, I'd love to know my 90-year-old self what she might have to say to me now. <laughs> um, so, uh, yes and no. Um, I think that we have to trust. At, at some point, we have to trust our teachers to know, you know, like we're at point A. Maybe we can see point B, but we can't see point D, E, F, G yet. But they can. Do you know what I mean? And so with my students, I think if I'm saying, what do you want to accomplish? I try to get them to see point B. And if they can see X, Y, Z, great. But usually they, well, they don't know. They just haven't lived it yet. And the, the yoga, are you teaching your music students aspects of yoga as well? Or is that a separate part of what you do? Yeah, I do. I teach one class at heart. It's it's the only one that I teach and it's a yoga for performers course. So it's it's mostly musicians, but it could be theater and dance students as well. 
And um, it's really a course that's divided into thirds. Um, there's a third, uh, there's a heavy component of pranayama or breathing and meditative aspects as well as movement and poses or asana, which is what we you know tend to think of as yoga. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the, at Kripala, where I did my training, there's a senior yoga teacher named Stephen Cope who founded um, a, a an institute, he calls it the Institute for Extraordinary Living. And he's basically asking the question, what does it mean to live a fulfilled life? And I thought that was a pretty great question. What does it mean to live a fulfilled life? <laughs> and he, it's right across the street from Tanglewood, which is the summer home of the Boston Symphony. He got Harvard Medical School to study the results of yoga on the Tanglewood musicians, on the Tanglewood fellows. And he really found two things. He found that um, there was a reduction in skeletal muscular disorder, which is kind of how I got started in the first place, but that wasn't the main thing. The main thing was there was a significant reduction in performance-related anxiety and a significant uh, enhancement in, in students' abilities to enter into flow states or these states of heightened concentration. And there's a book by a University of Chicago researcher called Meholi Csikszentmihalyi, I think I'm pronouncing that right, that initially introduced that idea of a flow state. But you know, we think of it as like athletes call it being in the zone. And it's that state of just being so focused that you lose track of everything else around you. So the course is really designed to take some of those aspects and try to help students that are engaging in music um, learn some of those skills because music is intense and music schools are intense. And, you know, it, it can be, it can be, it's going to be tough for them to uh, foster those skills in these environments that are so pressure filled. And that, so that's why I decided to offer it. It's funny in music that, I mean, the intensity essentially comes from your activities being concentrated into such a short amount of time. So I, I know you've played many concertos with orchestras and bands and you could say afterwards, oh, I had a tough day. I did 15 minutes work today. And someone might laugh at you for that. But the intensity and concentration required for those performances is intense. And it sounds like if you have developed some tools along the way that takes away some of that intensity, then surely you're going to perform at a higher level. Well, that's the idea. Yes. And it's a, it's a long-term thing. Um, but I do find that for me, it's survival. Uh, um, I tend to have a high level of anxiety, <laughs> uh, just it, anxiety, energy, and it has helped me a lot to be able to deal with not just that, but like you're saying, the required level of focus and concentration. Um, yeah, cause I can feel my, uh, mind disengage and, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a significant component of yoga that is, it's got a Sanskrit word. It means it's called aparigraha and it means non-grasping. And the yogic view is that when you're concerned about the outcome, um, it's interfering with the moment. It's interfering with 
both the physical and the psychological aspects of that particular moment. And that happens to us on stage all the time, right? I mean, you're playing along, you miss a note. If you take the time to worry about that missed note or how it's going to ruin the performance later, the recording later, you're going to miss the next note. And then, you know, then you go, oh no, I really, I have to focus. I really have to focus. And then you miss the whole next passage, (laughs) right? And so, yes, this idea is to find ways to not be worried about the outcome. You know, that was a, that was a big deal for me to say, what do you mean not worry about the outcome? And the jazz pianist Kenny Werner writes about that in his book called Effortless Mastery. And it kind of blew me away when I first read that. It's like, what do you mean? Of course I have to care about the performance, but that's not what he meant. He meant that he'd be so, so engrossed in the moment, in the task at hand, in the sound that he was making, that he didn't have any energy left over to worry about what it was going to be like when it was over. <laughs> so that's, that's very important to me um, because, other, you know, that's what helps keep some of the joy. It's too easy if you're worried about the product all the time that it's not, it, the joy's gone, the fun's gone. The whole reason for doing it, that level of communication in the moment is missing. So yes, I think it's extremely important for me. <laughs> and I suspect for a lot of others. I think my biggest draw card about playing music is the present moment because you can't escape it. Every note is in the present and after you've done it, it's in the past, but it's gone. And as you said, if, you, if you're thinking too much into the future, then of course, then you're tripping over yourself. So you very much have to be mindful of the present. And I don't think there's really enough time spent in that state just in general. So I think music's a wonderful place to be because it takes you there. Oh, I completely agree. Now, a few years ago, you joined the Transcontinental Saxophone Quartet. Ah, yes. <laughs> now, th- that sounds complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, so the they the, those guys were together as students, and they played a lot for at least a decade. And then because they were so far apart, Italy and Cyprus and um, North Dakota, they, they, you know, they just were doing different things in their lives. And then they decided to have a 20 year reunion and their tenor player had left and I happened to be there. And so, yeah, we did, we did a tour of Italy and it was so much fun that we ended up doing a tour of Cyprus. And that was so much fun that we did a whole thing in North Dakota. And then this past year, we did um, a, a thing in Michigan that was centered around the uh, uh, concerto with the with the Jackson Symphony, um, who has a wonderful new conductor named Matt Aubin that I know um, from the East Coast. So it is complex, and it's rooted in friendship and an exchange of cultural ideas. And everybody has these wildly different strengths and careers and cultural heritages. And it's just it's so much fun and so fascinating. But yes, because of the distance, it's something that tends to happen one time a year, not multiple times a year. Something for a specific project that you can work towards. Exactly, exactly. Now you've worked extensively with composers, premiering their works. How important has it been to you, first of all, for your career, but I guess personally as well, to play new music and to work with living composers? Mm, uh, Extremely, 
uh, right? I mean, I think that, um, I mean, first of all, it's it's kind of our obligation as saxophonists, but I don't do it out of obligation. I do it because the relationship with those composers matters to me. Um, and that relationship, of course, changes depending on the composer. So they're all different people. Their compositional process is also different. And so each project is completely different. Some, of course, like a lot of information about the instrument and about me up front. Some like to present a finished work with no interaction whatsoever. Some like to send drafts along the way to hear them. Um, but for me, it's this beautiful, wonderful way to continue to learn and grow myself through each project. Um, and hopefully, you know, create this beautiful piece that people will react to in some way. Um, and I like just being me. I tend to favor the possibility of more collaboration along the way rather than less, but I've also received some wonderful pieces as finished projects, products, excuse me. Um, and I work at a university that also has a large composition department. We have about 40 composition majors. So it's also something my students do on a regular basis. Um, there's there's always collaborations going on between my students and the composers. Um, and that could be, that could be any number of things. It could be pieces that are getting played on campus or maybe in a local arts venue or, you know, who knows, <laughs> whatever they come up with. Do you think there's something in a composition that makes it stick? I mean, you've seen so many new pieces. Are there ones that, afterwards keep getting played and really become part of the repertoire and others slide by the wayside have you found any common element either with the composer or the composition itself that could help a piece find an audience mm, that's a very interesting question and it's I can't, I'm not sure I can find a unifying element that would tie all of those pieces together. Because you're right, how do you know what reaches somebody and why? And then you get back to that question earlier where I mentioned my personal barometer is, do I get goosebumps? Why did I get those goosebumps? Is it the same in X piece versus Y piece? Um, you know, in a way, and I haven't thought this through, so I'll, I'll say it and, and see if this works. Um, and it's kind of one of those stereotypes, but I think that there's some truth to it. Um, for me, when I hear a performer, when there's a really good match between that person and their performance, you know, in other words, like it's, it's just very authentic. When I when they finish playing, and I feel like I know them better as a person because of that performance. Um, that's what I like. You know, I, I like. I mean, it's fine if they're playing a character for a particular thing, but if I if I know them, if I know something about them that I didn't know before, to me, I really appreciate that. And I think the same is probably true with a composer-performer collaboration. If there's something vulnerable that comes across in the composition, is there a certain level of vulnerability? What is that? Is there a personality? Is there... Um, you know, something that's unique to that particular person, that particular collaboration, that might have something to do with it, you know, as opposed to, 
I won't name names, but let's say American public school band programs that tend to have composers that, you know, they might write 20 pieces that all sound the same. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's not something about it that's uh, that unique statement. There, there, there's no vulnerability required. So if somebody's willing to let me see something about them, know something about them, hear something about them, experience something that I wouldn't have known otherwise. I, I, I know that's more of a philosophical thing, but I really think there's something to that. Do you think that the composer extends the instrumentalist or the instrumentalist extends the composer? Oh, both. Absolutely both. Um, you know, I mean, look at the pieces that were the hardest thing when I was a student are played by almost all undergrads now. The, the level have has grown ridiculously. Um, but I think it's been both, you know, sometimes it's the performer saying, look what I can do. And the composer says, that's cool. Let me write it. And sometimes the piece gets written and the performer goes, good God, I don't know how to do that. Let me figure it out. <laughs> and sometimes that works. And sometimes it doesn't work <laughs> as we know, but that's how, yeah, give it a try and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this involves yoga, but do you have any tips that could help perhaps a young saxophonist have a long and injury-free career? Yeah, and I think that's very important. I have a technique class that meets once a week that is largely based on that. So we're looking at the um, at the uh, you know, at the instrument, I mean, the whole reason I started to practice yoga is I was in pain, you know, and I, I, I tried everything I had. I took pain medication. I did therapeutic stretching. I had, um, I did Feldenkrais awareness. I did uh, rolfing and therapeutic massage. And, you know, I, I just sort of did everything. Um, and for me, yoga was the one thing that I could do on my own every day. So like a massage was great and it helped, but I couldn't afford to do it on a regular basis. And I realized that it wasn't overuse. It was just this extra level of, of tension. So I was approaching the instrument with way too much tension for way a very long time. And I think a lot of students do that as well. So yes, there's a level of awareness that um, they, that they need to develop in terms of how they pick the instrument up and approach it over time. So I like to see them with the instrument as much as I possibly can. So I can kind of monitor that um, and teach them. Yes. Teach them breathing exercises and stretching that is very specific to the muscles that we use when we go to pick up the saxophone and you know, how long to play before they take a break. Uh, is another part of it, but largely injury-free comes down to um, the least amount of tension necessary to play uh, the saxophone, I think. So becoming aware of tension, learning how to release that tension is the summary of <laughs> what I just said. Now I have some rapid fire questions for you. So feel free to be brief or not. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Is there something that you believe that few people agree with? Yeah, that's, it's hard because I, I, I don't know really uh, what other people, uh, you know, I mean, I don't necessarily know who would agree or disagree with me. Um, 
you know, I know within my university, I try to always ask the question first, what's best for students? Um, and, you know, hopefully everybody else asks that too, but I'm not sure it's always the case when you're dealing with a bottom line and a budget. <laughs> um, I know there are some aspects of my curriculum that are somewhat unique. And we talked about that earlier, dealing with classical music transcription and notating it in a way that doesn't involve any pitch and rhythm. That's a little bit different. Um, and I don't know that anyone was doing that before me, even though the concept you know, I explained where that came from. So that's a tricky one. I perhaps it perhaps it comes the people who disagree with you don't tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or they do, right? <laughs> so now, if you just had one piece of music that you could play from now on, which piece would that be, and why? Oh, it would have to be the Bach A minor Partita, because. Because I don't get it. I could play it my whole life and never be done with it. And there's always something else to hear and do and solve. And the piece just absolutely fascinates me. So, yeah, probably. If it had to only be one, the Bach A minor partita. I also love playing um, Lara Auerbach's The Prayer, that she did this version for me. Um, and just because I love the way it feels to play it, it feels like a meditation. It's so highly individual and it's different every time. Um, so that would be it. But the Bach A minor, yes. If you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend that one hour? Oh, okay. So it depends on what I need. But um, with my young, especially with my younger undergraduate students, I really do suggest some time management um, that's kind of a 50-50 approach. So 50% of the time is dealing with, uh, you know, warm up and, and technique. And I mean, I use the te word technique more globally. It's not just how fast you move your fingers, but the technique of breathing, the technique of vibrato, the technique of voicing, et cetera, et cetera. And I divide that to 25% the things that happen inside the body, like breathing and long tones and dynamic control and intonation. And then 75% what's happening externally, facility development scales, etudes are, you know, uh, altissimo and then 50% repertoire or transcribing. Um, and some, I, I do, I do have my students, I ask them to do some playing by ear and that can be, that can be anything. It can be something they're memorizing. It could be something that they're just uh, working on ear training. So, um, sometimes I follow that myself. It's very regimented, organized. I'm going to do 10 minutes of this and 10 minutes of this and 30 minutes of this. And so if it really is only one hour and there's a particular thing I have to get done and I'm not in a, you know, I'm not in a, I think I'll, I think I'll spend the next hour exploring 20 ways to play the same phrase that, you know, it, it depends because it could be that if it's what, if it's some, that's what I need that day, then that's what I might do. But I do, I do find more technique gives me more freedom. I do have to be able to maintain a certain set of skills to be able to pl just play the instrument. It doesn't play itself even after all these years. <laughs> you know, I had a, I had a call from a friend today who told me saxophone weighed a kilogram heavier because of all the dust that had accumulated on it. <laughs> Yeah, you got to dust it off, man. <laughs> you have recorded a lot of albums, haven't you? Well, it's, I think a lot is relative. Um, you know, uh, 
more than some, not as much as others. How about that? <laughs> I think it's really important um, for me because, of course, you, you have to be on the outside. And it's just, it's the microphone picks up things that the human ear doesn't perceive, and it's a way to learn. So I think it's essential. I actually make all of my doctoral students record at least one work while they're still in school so they can get used to what that process is like. But yeah, we have to do it. And I live with the microphone in my studio for practicing. Um, yeah, it's really important. Years later, are you good at looking back at your former self? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I actually got... I think uh, too good at it I w- in a way that was unhealthy. Um, like I would, I would just, I would, here's what happened. I was recording myself every single day in the practice room, which was great because things were changing, but I almost got to the point where I couldn't hear it properly unless it was coming back through the microphone. So I had to, I had to step back and find a better balance there. Um, and I also, I used to walk off the stage and listen to the recording immediately. And now I make myself wait at least a day (laughs) because it was, you know, it was never good. It it was never a good, I I shouldn't say that it was helpful. Um, it was very helpful. And sometimes it was reassuring, uh, but it was a, a little bit too, uh, I'll, the word sounds so negative, but it was a little bit too much like an addiction and I had to, I had to let go of it. I guess there's that danger of losing the moment too, because you're, um, instead of just listening immediately while you're playing, you can just, oh, I'll listen later. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's that idea of a parigraha and worrying about the outcome as opposed to what's actually happening in the moment. Is memorization something that's important to you? And if it is, are there any specific techniques that you use to help that? Mm, you know, so I I do require my students to memorize. We have a, a, a concert every year called Heart by Heart with Heart. And so they all have to do a, a, a significant solo work and an ensemble work by memory. Some of them love it. They do it all the time. Some of them um, don't. and But I want them to know it's a skill that they can learn and practice. I find that taking away that music, I can do it. I have done it. Uh, I find that it disconnects me because there is, a, there's a, you know, there's a fear with not having it. I didn't grow up doing it. Um, so I find that it, for me, there's often a disconnect. And so I practice it, I do it, but I often, I usually don't perform from memory myself um, for that reason. Uh, but, you know, I've got this, I've decided for my 50th birthday, I'm going to walk the 500 meal, the 500 miles of the Camino de Santiago across northern Spain next spring. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to bring the soprano because it's lighter. And I had originally sort of intended it to be this, I'm going to just bring random music to random places. Um, and, you know, kind of like a, a portable busking situation and just kind of see how that experience went because I've never done anything like that. And I just read an article in the New York Times that there's a cellist who uh, who played concerts in the churches along the way. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting. But my intention is to play from memory there. So ask me in a year and I'll let you know how it went. <laughs> so will you play the Bach minor? You know, yeah, that's that's on the list because after all these years, I haven't played it in public. And that seems like a good, you know, a thousand year old trail. I think it seems like a good pairing. (laughs) Who would you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the saxophone? 
Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, I, okay. So of course Adolf Sachs, because he gave us this beautiful instrument with which we have to create art, but I really have to go with my teacher, Don Sinta, you know, I mean, I think it was the Dalai Lama that said something about the best way to achieve immortality is through teaching. And I just have to say that the legacy of Don Sinta's teaching is incredible. Um, so I think through his teaching, through his students, um, it, you know, it, it, it sounds cheesy, but it really is this fabulous way of spreading the love. If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make them? Oh, it's essential. We don't learn without them. And I'm, you know, I mentioned earlier, this willingness to be vulnerable is the key is, is key to musicianship. And I think that's absolutely true. But it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to let ourselves make them. And it's hard to forgive ourselves when we make them. But we have to make them. Do you have any strategy for f forgiving yourself if you, you know, if you're not happy with performance on stage? No, I'm bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm horrible at it. <laughs> a work, a work in progress. <laughs> I try to, like you said, it's it's a it's truly in the moment. I mean, I have a tattoo on my left ankle that means impermanence, and it's my attempt to embrace that the one constant has changed. That the very art of making music is impermanent because it only happens in place and time. So I do all these things. I went skydiving specifically to learn about letting go. I, you know, I thought if I could jump out of the edge of an airplane that I can certainly let go of a few mistakes on the stage. <laughs> so I work very, very hard at it. <laughs> You've played as a soloist on many occasions and in a couple of weeks time, you'll be performing at the World Saxophone Congress. Is there something specific that you do before you walk on stage, right before a performance to help you play at your best? Yes. Yeah. I use a breathing technique. Um, to slow down the metabolism. Um, there are two. One is, uh, they're, they're yogic techniques, but they're really not fancy. One is just called Dirga Pranayam, and it is completely filling and emptying the lungs in a three-part breath. And I set the timer on my phone, and I do that for 10 minutes. Um, and even better than that is an alternate nostril breath called Nadi Shodhana, which um, it calms the nerves. It produces more uh, uh, alpha waves in the brain, the ones that are responsible for relaxation and a calm mind. And it lets us not, uh, you know, for breathing quickly, we're producing beta waves. So that actually increases anxiety. So I very specifically use breathing techniques to calm my nervous system before going on stage. Now, looking back with a bit of hindsight, could you give your younger self a piece of advice that you would have loved to have heard? Oh, you know, I'm not sure I would because I am who I am because of the experiences that I've had. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't trade who I am. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, my dad used to tell this story about a, a, a rabbi. Um, there was a, a Jewish rabbi who, you know, served the leader of this community. And 
he, there were problems and everyone was complaining and the rabbi became really exasperated and came up with the solution. And the rabbi said that he would take away all their problems. And all they had to do was write down their problems on a piece of paper and put that piece of paper in their, uh, I think he called it a pecola. It was a little backpack of someone, a sack that hung on a short pole. And they had to bring that pecola to the town square. And so they, it was like a Yiddish backpack. And and the next day, they all showed up with their little pecolas, and the rabbi told everybody to form this large circle and place their pecola on the ground in front of them. And so they all put it down in the ground in front of them. And then the rabbi announced that everybody had to take one step to the left. And everybody did. And then he said, you have to pick that up and look in it. <laughs> and everybody did. They, 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 they looked at that other person's set of problems. And then, of course, what they did is they all took one step right, right back to the right. <laughs> so they, they, given the opportunity, they really wanted their own set of problems. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, I think that's what I mean by that. It's Sure, would I have loved to have had some early training that was come that was you know helped me be learn things early on? Yes, but at the same time, then I wouldn't be as aware of the process as an adult, and I think that helps my teaching. So I think we kind of take those challenges and those things that we call weaknesses, and um, sometimes they're you know they're our vulnerabilities. They're they they can be our strengths. They help us. So, so I think I would just tell. Maybe this is what I would tell my younger self. Um, it's going to be okay. And I, I, I'm imagining myself being 90, telling me this now. Any choice you make is going to be the right choice. It'll all be okay. <laughs> I got to go with that. Is that all right? <laughs> okay. Now, what are some of the changes that you've seen in the saxophone world, and? What are some things that haven't changed that you thought might have changed? Mm. Well, I think what I mentioned earlier, just with the level of playing and the level of repertoire um, and the widespread availability of, of, you know, so many people are out there. There are so many beautiful players and beautiful teachers. And that just wasn't the case um, 30 years ago or or what. I think that some of that is, some of that is, you know, our, at least in this country, our main early teachers produce so many wonderful students that have become wonderful teachers that there's just more going on. And then undoubtedly, the um, social media and the internet has made the sharing of information available in a way that it just wasn't when I was a student. You know, I was, uh, I'm that level. I went to college with a typewriter and a record player and a phone on the wall. And by the time I graduated, there were CDs and we had to turn in assignments on a word processor, not even a computer, but a word processor. So that was the, that, you know, those four years were when everything changed. So it's fabulous. Our, you know, these students have these wonderful networks of support and they know everybody all over the world and they think nothing of um, reaching out and asking a question. And I mean, look what we're doing now. How unbelievably great is this that we're able to have this conversation? So that is, well, it's changed the world, but it's certainly changed the saxophone too. And um, some of the things that remain the same you know, kids are kids <laughs> and humans are humans. And in terms of our human needs, 
we haven't really changed all that much. You know, we, we still value connection. Um, we still value the privilege of collaboration and um, being able to say something in a way through music to another human that allows them to take it in and change as a result. Is there a particular place that people can find out more about your activities? Is your website something you keep up to date? Do you prefer social media? What's your go-to? Oh, you know, I'm not so great at it. I, my, my website is accurate, but it's intentionally kind of a bare bones website. Um, I do use Facebook regularly. Uh, I've not taken on Twitter, Instagram, and my students have asked me to get better about it. So I, I am trying, but I'd say, you know, if you want to learn more about me, write, call, ask questions, just like you're doing now. I love to ask questions of other people. I, I, I value curiosity. Um, and, uh, yeah, to, I, I value curiosity in other people as well. Now, is there a recent project you'd like to tell us about something you've been working on lately or might be coming out sometime soon? Um, yeah, I, I've, I've, a couple of things. Um, I am trying uh, very hard to create more service opportunities, more community engagement. Um, we are this private university with a public purpose. I'm really interested in taking students into, you know, different environments where there's different kinds of possibilities of connection, um, you know, and and I'm not sure that where that's going to take me. I'm really interested in this new field called music music thanatology, which is essentially um, a, uh, you know, a way of using music to help people die when their time has come to die. It's part of palliative care. Um, but at the same time, it, in terms of performance, I, I, you know, I'm embarking on a new project that I think I'm going to entitle Voiced. And it's still formulating, but I am going to share the first installment at the World Saxophone Congress, which is a piece by Jilda Lyons. And in this case, it's it's um, giving voice to a uh, kind of a, a gendered experience, but using my speaking voice and the saxophone, not singing, I can't sing. Um, but the idea with the project is um, to give voice where there historically has not been a voice. And uh, I have some ideas that I'm hesitating to share just because I don't know whether they're going to actually happen yet. But that could be, that could be, I'm, I have to say, I'm really excited about it. And I'm really happy to be very excited about it. Um, and I have, you know, I sort of have this ongoing Pink Ink series of recording and performing music by women composers. Um, and I've got a couple of pieces that I've recorded that just haven't been released yet. Uh, one is a concerto by the fabulous composer Susan Botti that I love. So I hope that people will listen to that when it comes out. Um, and uh, there is um, Hilary Tan. Wrote a piece that also that's that's done. It just needs to get released, and so I've got a few things from that particular project that hopefully will have a nice result. Now you've made a wonderful contribution to the saxophone over many years, both as a performer and a teacher. What would you see for yourself over the next ten, twenty years? You know, hopefully being able to bring some of these ideas into you know, to life um, 
and hopefully continuing to engage with my students in a meaningful way. Um, and I'm constantly working to adjust and adapt and uh, evolve as the times change and the students change and the requirements change. So it's very challenging. So in a way, um, you know, kind of this ride that I'm on, this musical ride, this saxophone ride, this professional ride, this teaching ride, um, I want to stay on the the ride (laughs) Um, and keep reaching out to make a difference in the ways that I can make a difference. Um, So, uh, yeah, you know, at, at the same time, there's a there's an old Jewish proverb that goes, "If you want to make God laugh, make plans." <laughs> and I find I'm someone who, you know, I've never been a person that said, "Oh, in ten years, I want to X." And and I, I feel like I've always responded to the situation I'm in by paying attention to the situation that's right in front of me, and then things happen as a result. You know, my first job at the University of New Mexico. I mean everybody else would have thought this is this is a terrible job i had seven students for 20 dollars an hour and you know i didn't go to work saying i'm going to build this program i went to work and taught those kids as best i could and and uh, um and as a result, the program got built and then the job changed and then it turned into a tenure track position and that you know what i mean like things happen because i'm paying attention to what is happening in the moment so i think i'm going to keep doing that, but with awareness that maybe helps me look at all the ways that that changes and evolves. You know, I don't want to do the same thing in the same way, Um, but being able to make music and create art with wonderful colleagues and students, um, that's what I'm that's what I want to do. You know, there's an Abraham Lincoln quote that I really like that I live by, which is this. I've simply tried to do what seemed best each day as each day came. Carrie, thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat with me. And I can't wait to see you again in a few weeks time. Oh, I'll look forward to it. Thank you for asking the questions. All right. Bye. Just before you go, a quick reminder to let you know that show notes, any links and a full text transcript are also available. It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Zach's show.